turn again in the Word of God to the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13. Let's begin at the first verse, Numbers 13, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, everyone a leader among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the commandment of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the children of Israel. Now these were their names, and it goes through a list of names, probably the only two of which that we would find familiar. We find in verse 8, Hoshea, the son of Nun, who very shortly gets a name change in verse 16. These are the names whom, men, uh, whom Moses rather sent to spy out the land, and Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua. And then the other name that we'd be familiar with from this list as well is from the tribe of Judah in verse 6, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. Those are the two men who we probably have the best name recognition from. We carry on with verse 17. Then Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up this way into the south and go up to the mountains and see what the land is like whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many, whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are forests there or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. When you come to this section of the book of Numbers, it is somewhat depressing because from chapter 11 on through chapter 21, we have repeatedly a series of failures within the nation of Israel. There's also interspersed amidst these failures much of the grace of God, as we'll see. But after we did an overview yesterday of the first 10 chapters of Numbers, and we saw essentially that God gave them everything they needed for success— it is then a bit disheartening to see them instead lapse into failure. But that is how it's been in every age, you know. People have the idea somehow that God sets people up for failure. When you hear people talk about Adam and Eve, for example, they, they read Genesis and they say, well, oh, of course there was that tree they weren't supposed to touch. I mean, God put that in there. And we all know what happens, you know, when you tell the child, don't go into the kitchen and touch the cookie jar. We can just about kiss those Oreos goodbye, can't we? But we're looking at things through the colored lenses of the fall. We are fallen creatures who really can't fathom true innocence. And we also cannot see that when the Bible says that of all the trees of the garden they mayest freely eat, our God gave them a tremendous amount to choose from. Gave them so many things that they could have been blessed in. It reminds me of what he'd later say 
to King David through the prophet Nathan after David had committed his sin with Bathsheba and the horrible murderous cover-up that ensued afterwards. He said, you know, I took you from the sheepfold and I made you king over Israel and I gave you all of these things. And if it were not enough, I would have given more to you. See, we have a God who's not miserly and close-handed and doesn't want to give to us. The very nature of grace, the idea of grace, is God giving. God showering on us His largesse, being generous with us, being exceedingly kind with us. That's God's nature. And God says to Adam and Eve, for example, you can eat of all the trees, you may freely eat them. Yet when the serpent starts interrogating the woman in chapter 3, the woman omits the fact that they may freely eat of all these trees. And she adds the fact that they may not touch the trees, which God had not said. It's dangerous to omit from the Word of God. It's also dangerous to add to the Word of God, and we see both in Genesis chapter 3. But the serpent's tactic was to get Eve's eyes onto what God had prohibited not onto what God gave. Now, we all understand this at some level because this is the nature of temptation. Satan doesn't come to you and say, now consider how good God is. I mean, he gave you life this morning. In him you live and move and have your being, as Paul put it in Acts 17. You got up out of your cot or your hammock or your nice comfortable bed, in my case, at Curry Village, or whatever, And you came along and you enjoyed a good breakfast, no doubt, and you saw some of your friends and and you had some of that stirring warm java to get you going in the morning, the helpful little bean that will fortify you during Keith's message. And, And you've enjoyed all of these blessings. You've taken the sunshine from God. You've taken the beautiful trees and the air and even the thoughts that God has permitted you to have today. Look at all these things God has given you. And yet Satan comes and says, you know what, it would, I, I bet people out there in the world, I bet they're doing something here in the park that's a lot of fun, that, that you could be enjoying right now. If you would just let yourself go like them, somehow it would be better than what God gives you. But that's never true, is it? It's a lie. Because God wants what's best for us. As James puts it, every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness nor shadow of turning. So when we come to numbers, we have to understand this isn't God browbeating a people through the wilderness and saying, now, you have to eke it out. You have to have the old army sea rations. I I forget, uh, meals ready to, there's some kind of acronym. I can never keep up with those acronyms now. They have a new name. But, you know, the World War II generation, it was sea rations. And and they didn't taste that great. You know, they were, I know, because I bought them from the Army-Navy store and ate them like 40 years later. And then, you know, I survived. And when I was nine years old at the campfire, I thought it was really cool. But it wasn't gourmet cuisine. And, And you get the idea sometimes when you come to places like chapter 11, where the children of Israel are out there in the desert and they say, we're hungry. We could really use some meat. All for a Brazilian churrascaria in the wilderness, you know? If I just had one of those little blocks that I could turn up to green, and the man would come around with the skewers of meat. See, I wouldn't use this illustration if I was in the second spot. It's too close to lunch. 
And we might tend to sympathize and say, well, of course they got weak. I mean, there they are in the wilderness without meat. And yet we forget that God was taking care of their needs. He was giving them not angel food cake, but what the psalmist calls angel's bread. I always have to laugh at it. It was called manna in Hebrew, what is it? For four decades, they ate it, it sustained them, and yet they didn't even know what it was. They could describe it. It was like coriander, and it was like wafers, and so forth and so on. But they really didn't understand what it was or how it came down. It was just the provision of God, and God gave it to them, and yet they said, our soul loathes this worthless bread. It's a sad spiritual state when you're not happy with feeding on what God gives you. When you can go and hear Christ ministered from the Word, and that doesn't feed your soul, that's a red flag. you got to stop and look around. I was preaching far, far away from here, not in a galaxy far away, but it was a long time ago, in another state far away from here, at a place I've only been to once. I went there on a Sunday evening, and the Lord put on my heart to preach Colossians 1 which is one of the most Christological passages in the New Testament. It's all about the Lord Jesus, all about all of his great attributes and his wonderful work. And I preached Christ. And it was one of those times where the Spirit of God gave me real liberty. And afterwards, there were some, a minority of people that came to me out of a fairly sizable crowd. And they said, oh, we haven't heard preaching like that in a long time. And I thought, what are they talking about? You know, this was simple. This wasn't rocket science. I was just preaching about the Lord and bringing out things about the Lord that were beautiful but familiar. Not like I had discovered some great profound truths. I mean, these were things that believers know, right? And I'm thinking, you know, what are they talking about? And I didn't really understand until about a year later, a friend of mine went to the same place And he was invited over to one of the elders' homes, and uh, he got to talking to this elder, and somehow he mentioned, I I heard my friend Keith was there preaching, and he said, "Uh, what did you think of him? And uh, the man's comment was, well, you know, he was okay, but he didn't even have PowerPoint. And when I heard that, my heart really sank. I'll tell you why it sank. Not because I care two straws about what he thought about my preaching, but the fact that I just spoke about Christ. And yet here was a man who had no appreciation, seemingly, for anything that was said about the Lord. And I found out a little time later that that church was in the process of getting farther and farther away from the Word and trying to bring in more of man's entertainment and trying to do whatever they could to make the church more palatable to the world. And I said, ah, now I understand. Now I know why those people were telling me we haven't heard preaching like this. Because there was a decision made that Christ isn't enough. We need something else. We don't want to feed on what God's given us. Well, it's a very old problem. And the Israelites were familiar with it. They experienced it. And they murmured and they complained. And God had to chasten them. Now, 
Chapter 11, if you read it on your own time, is representative of a lot of things that happened in the wilderness. This isn't the first time they murmured. You go back to Exodus 16, and they're complaining about not having food. Or Exodus 17, they're complaining about not having water. And always, they're insinuating that somehow God doesn't love them, or God doesn't care for them, or worse still, that God's a sadist, that he just brought them out here to make them suffer and kill them in the wilderness. We're going to see that again in chapters 13 and 14. And Moses even gets a bit exasperated. And he said, Oy vey, am I this people's mother? You know, did I bear all these people? Why do I have to take care of all these people, Lord? And the Lord in grace says, Moses, I'm going to give you help. I'm going to take of the spirit that's on you. I'm going to put it on 70 elders and you're going to get help. So God wanted to minister to the needs of his people. It wasn't like God said, I won't help. Moses said, God, I need more help. And God said, okay, Moses, here's your help. And yet, dear Moses, sometimes the attacks come from where you least expect it. You come to chapter 12 and you find Moses, the most humble man on earth, according to chapter 12, attacked. Attacked by whom? Attacked by his sister. That's right. Attacked by his brother. Attacked by his own family. Now, his sister Miriam seemed to take the lead in that. That's why she bears the brunt of the chastisement in that chapter. And again, we see God coming forth in grace. He could have just killed her dead right there. But he didn't do that. He made her a leper to demonstrate the pervasive, sinful attitude that was there. And she had to be put out of the camp. But it was beautiful that God said, the camp's not going to move till we bring her back in. I tell you, sometimes discipline has to happen, even today among the people of God. But it's a beautiful thing when God can use discipline to make a believer repent and that they can be restored to the church of God. What a wonderful thing it is when that happens. It's sad when people either don't submit to discipline and don't let God work in their life, or when they do and the believers don't want to receive them back. Both of those are terrible errors. No, God wants to restore his people. But then we come to chapter 13, and we get this story about the spies. Now, the way it reads in Numbers here, it sounds like God just tells them to send the spies. If you compare what Deuteronomy 1 says, it tells us there that the Israelites actually asked God, or asked Moses, hey, can we send spies? After all, there's some military strategy there, isn't there? You want to send your intelligence forces. You want to send somebody out there to do a bit of recon and know what you're up against. And God acquiesced to that desire. He said, okay, we'll do that. But you notice what Moses said here when he sent out these spies. He gives them their marching orders, not only tells them to survey the land in verse 17 of chapter 13, but he says in Numbers thirteen eighteen. see what the land is like, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many, and whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are forests there, be of good courage and bring some fruit of the land. Now, why is that? Because what God wants to happen here is he wants the spies to go in and give a true assessment of the land and show that the land is exactly as advertised, that it is a beautiful, fertile land worth having. 
And what's more, that God has given them this land, that this is a harbinger of things to come. As they see that fruit, it's meant to stir their hearts. Yes, I want to go in and possess that inheritance, what God has for me. That was God's intention. We'll find out it turned out differently. But it's interesting, just a word on the men that are chosen here as spies. You notice uh, Moses didn't go and say, all right, who's free this afternoon? Uh, You're not going down the river. You're not going up to Glacier Point. uh, You're not going to go out and have a barbecue. Okay, you 12 guys, just go in and spy. No, no. These men are described at the beginning of chapter 13 here as, verse 2, leaders among them. And in verse 3, who were heads of the children of Israel. So these men are prominent men. They are not people that are lower class or people that you can't have confidence in or people whose opinion you don't really trust. These are supposed to be the creme de la creme, you know, the people that are the upper crust. They're the leaders. And so the leaders are going to go in and act as the spies. And yet what you find out in the book of Numbers is that time and time again, leaders can fail. That's why we don't put our confidence in princes. We don't put our confidence in kings. We put our confidence in the living God. Now, thanks be to God, not all 12 were going to be washouts. There were going to be those two, as every Sunday school child here knows, uh, 12 men went to spy on Canaan, 10 were bad and two were good. So we're going to think about the two good ones. And what a wonderful thing it is. uh, Sometimes I go to a place where Brother Steve Price has been. He gave a stirring gospel message about his time in traffic court there one time. I know because I saw it on Bahamas Christian Network. But this little island of Spanish Wells is interesting. Everybody has a nickname. And I remember the, the late preacher Neil Dougal, the first time he went down there, he went to the prayer meeting and he heard them praying for Hitler and Stalin and Churchill. And he said, don't they know these people are dead? But they were nicknames of people on the island. That, that, that's the kind of thing there, you know. But think about it. Your name is Hosea, deliverance or salvation. And Moses says, as he says here to him in verse 16, you're going to be called Joshua. He adds to it, the name of the Lord. Jehovah is salvation. Yahweh is salvation. Or Yahweh saves, perhaps, something on that order. Uh, Yeshua in Hebrew, Jesus in Greek. So this one is going to have a great career ahead of him. We'll say a bit more about him, Lord willing, later in the week in another message. But as they go out and they uh, go on this spying mission, we see what happened. Verse 21 of chapter 13 reads, So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin, as far as Rahav, near the entrance of Hamat. And they went up through the south and came to Hebron. Ahiman, Shishai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were there. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zon in Egypt. Then they came to the valley of Eshkol, And there they cut down a branch with one cluster of grapes, and they carried it between two of them on a pole. They also brought some of the pomegranates and figs. So they go and they find this is a fruitful land. Do you know the modern state of Israel is so proud of this image that even today the symbol of the tourism bureau there 
are these two stick men carrying a pole with a long cluster of grapes. So as you go around the historic sites in Israel, you'll see the historic signs and you see the little sign there with the two stick men with the long cluster of grapes. They know they live in a fertile land, which they're justly proud of. The place was called the Valley of Eshcol, verse 24 says, because of the cluster which the men of Israel cut down there, and they returned from the spying out the land after 40 days. Again, a number of testing in Scripture. Verse 26, Now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. So far, so good. Then they told him, verse 27, and said, We went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. All right, that's a good beginning, isn't it? They're saying, in essence, just what God said about the land. It's absolutely right. Look at the fruit. We've been brought empirical proof of what the land is like. I wish I could stop right there. It would be nice to just sit on that period for a while at the end of verse 27. But you see there in verse 28, nevertheless, which is a highfalutin way of saying, but. (laughs) And you know, when somebody says to you, I really like you, but, oh boy, you know, cover your head, uh, get behind a tree, the volley is coming. I mean, there's going to be a barrage now, right? Nevertheless, verse 28, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. We'll find out he was a really tall guy. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the banks of the Jordan. By the way, newsflash, that was not anything new. That was not actually new intelligence. If you go back four centuries, more than four centuries, to Genesis chapter 12, when Abraham comes into the land, he finds out the Canaanite is then in the land. That's what Genesis 12 tells us. So we know those people are there. God hasn't been hiding that fact. It's not like he says, all right, I've got a land for you. And they get there and they see all these big people. And God says, surprise, I forgot to tell you, you had to fight for it. No, God told them right from the beginning, I'm going to come and give you the land. In fact, he told their ancestor Abraham, the cup of the Amorites is not yet full. Their iniquity hasn't reached terminal mass. And I am going to judge these people one day after 400 years. Your descendants are going to be enslaved. And then I'm going to bring them out of that land and I'll bring them into this land and I'll give it to my people, to Israel. And so God made that promise back there to Abraham. Now, a lot of people get a bit antsy or uncomfortable when they think about God judging these nations in Canaan. We should remember a few things about that. Number one, we should remember that these were really decadent civilizations. You don't have to take my word for it. Read some books on Israelite archaeology from this time period, what what the modern archaeologists have dug up of the Canaanite civilizations, and you will find out that these were civilizations, much like our own, that increasingly devalued life, that they would kill the very young, they would offer child sacrifice, 
and they would kill the very old, and they were very much accustomed to ritual prostitution, enslaving people, or maybe having some people be volunteers, but in any case, worshiping their gods through prostitution and through perversion. And out of this, there was a tremendous amount of destruction even within these civilizations. There was much inherent rot. So when God was sending in Israel to judge these nations, it was the righteous judge of all the earth using Israel as his instrument to judge these peoples. Now, lest you think that's somehow unfair of God, let me tell you that later in Israel's history, when Israel disobeyed the Lord and fell into gross sin, God said, I'm going to do the same thing to you. He used the Assyrians to come in and take away the 10 northern tribes in 722 or 21 BC. And then he used the Babylonians in 587 or 586 BC to come take the southern tribes away into their captivity. And a lot of people died just read the book of Jeremiah. I've been reading it devotionally, and sometimes it's just not the happy thought for the morning that you hope for, you know? But it is showing the righteousness of God. So whether he's talking to his own people, he reserves the right to use other nations to judge them, or whether he's talking about the Canaanites, he reserves the right to use Israel to judge them. In fact, if you read Deuteronomy 2, these Canaanites had displaced other nations before themselves. So they're getting what they've done to other people. These are societies that are so wicked, so corrupt, so dangerous and harmful to others, it is determined that there has to be a grand coalition to go take them out. Now, have we seen that in our own time? We've seen the various powers of the Western world get together and say, this leader is evil, he has to go. This person is promulgating dangerous things to other societies. You can think about what Tom Brokaw called the greatest generation, how the people of my grandparents' generation banded together to end fascism, to get rid of the Nazis, to get rid of the imperial warlords that were running Japan in a way that was self-destructive to their own people, to get rid of Mussolini in Italy, and so forth. So even human beings recognize there's a time when justice demands there's intervention. Well, this is what God's saying. My justice is going to come upon this people. Having said that, Even in the conquest, you find out that God is merciful. Because every time somebody from the Canaanites threw themselves on the mercy of God, you know what God did? He spared them. Consider Rahab the prostitute. She wasn't a nice, polite church member. She wasn't an upstanding religious person in her community. She was at the bottom of the social scale. And yet, when the spies later under the days of Joshua came to her city of Jericho, she hid them and she said, you know why I'm doing this? We've heard about your God. We heard what he did to Egypt. We heard how he humbled the biggest superpower in the world. And I don't want that to happen to me or my family. Save us. And did God save her? Can you get any more saved than Rahab? Not only is she spared from destruction that comes upon Jericho, she becomes the ancestress of a wonderful man called Boaz, who's the great hero of the book of Ruth, and also the ancestress 
of King David, the man after God's own heart. And oh, I open the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1, and I find her in the genealogy of our blessed Lord as far as his humanity is concerned. I would call that thoroughgoing full salvation. And that was a Canaanite woman that threw herself on the mercy of God, that said, save me, Lord, a sinner. And God said, I'll save you. There were these other people, Gibeonites. You would have loved them in Southern California. They were real Hollywood types, you know? They could have walked the red carpet and they would have gotten up there with the little gold Oscar statue and say, you like me, you really like me. You know, they they were just great actors and actresses because they put on old clothes and they brought this moldy old bread. I hope that didn't happen to any of you with your supplies coming to the conference here this week, but they, they came looking like they came from afar. And they said, you know, came. Canaanites? No, we're not from around here. We're from very far away. But nonetheless, we've heard about how great you are. We'd like a peace treaty. And uh, without consulting the Lord or praying about it, that's always dangerous. They said, sure, we're feeling magnanimous. We'll make a peace treaty with you. And they made a treaty with them. And then they found out, hey, those guys live right down the road. They are Gibeonites. Oh, the Israelites were hopping mad being deceived like that. But what did God say? He said, no, you don't destroy them. You honor that peace treaty. They didn't call out to God for mercy in the conventional way, maybe, but they knew we got to come to terms with this true and living God or we're going to be destroyed. So God said, guess what? You make them the people that cut the wood and carry the water. Oh, cut the wood and carry the water. Well, what did they use cut wood in Israel for and and water for in Israel? Well, numerous things undoubtedly, but when you talk about public national functions, I'll tell you the big area where wood and water was consumed, nationally speaking, was in the worship of God at the tabernacle. Oh, I see. So you have these Canaanite people that were accursed, that should have been destroyed, these Gibeonites. But they threw themselves on the mercy of the Lord And they end up contributing to what is used for the worship of the Lord. I don't know about you, but sometimes I imagine myself much like a Gibeonite. Because I was under a curse too. I was far from God. I was without hope. I was without the covenants. I was without the promises. Just a dead in trespasses and sins, old Gentile sinner who couldn't demand anything from God. And yet I come to God And God says, I can serve him and I can worship him and I can contribute to that which lifts up his glory. That's the kind of God God is. So please, when you read your Bible, do it not superficially. Do it with the depth of the context of the whole word of God and see what God is like. He's perfectly just, but he's also gracious. Now, these spies came back, and essentially what they said is, well, sure, the land is good and all that, and it's fruitful, but have you seen those really tall people there? I know how they feel. I'm not much on tall people myself, but anyway, you know, you have to love people. That's what the Lord says, so I do. They were worried about the giants. Brother Steve mentioned this last night at the youth meeting, and I had to laugh. He mentioned my favorite part of this whole story, because they said, you know what? In our own sight, when we looked at those great big giants, as big as they were, we looked like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight, which, of course, makes my imagination run a little wild. I can see the spy there. He's hiding behind a bush. And he says, psst, psst, hey, you, tall guy. 
Hey, Mr. Giant, you here, Mr. Giant, could you come over here, please? We're taking a poll. Now, please, look at, look at your stature. My, you're a tall one. You're a really big man, aren't you? And look at me. What do I look like? Would you say a hamster? No, not a hamster. Okay. A scorpion? No. A spider? No. A grasshopper? Oh, yeah, that's what we were thinking, too. Okay, I'll write down on the clipboard, grasshopper. You really think that happened? I don't think that happened at all. But you know what? When you're out of the will of God and when you're disobeying God, you can fall into all kinds of absurdities. And your mind can run away with you and you start fearing things and building up things in your own mind. And they're looking at the enemies when they should have been looking at God. Now, we come to chapter 14, and we'll get the other side of the story here. All the congregation, verse 1, lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in the land of this wilderness. They're very particular about the way they die, you know? I mean, yeah, it would have been better just to die back in Egypt. We would have had a pyramid or something. And, or we could at least die out here in the wilderness. That death in Canaan is going to be a terrible death. Why has the Lord brought us, verse 3, to this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and children should become victims? Oh, doesn't that sound really sweet and loving? You know, we're not just a bunch of base, yellow-bellied cowards that don't want to go in and fight the tall people. It's really because we care about our children. That's why we're doing this. Why are you leaving this church? Well, it's for my children, you know. I mean, I don't want to be there for my children. Oh, you don't you want your children under the sound of the word of God being taught from the whole counsel of God? That'll be better for them, really? It's an old excuse, you see. Verse 4, so they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. Whoa, that's heavy stuff. Because the gospel, remember, as preached to the Israelites was, You come out of the land, I'll deliver you out of the land, out of that wrath that was falling on Egypt, out of this area I've condemned, and I'll bring you into a land, a promised land. And ultimately, when they come up against some suffering, some problem, they say, no, I don't want to struggle. I don't want to fight. I just want to go back to Egypt. (laughs) Egypt was a lot better, you know. But the other side, verse 6, But Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes, a sign of mourning. And they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, The land we passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. Okay, so now the spies agree on something. The ten unbelieving spies have said the land's good. The two believing spies say the land's good. That's not in question. We can table that part. Verse 8, if the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give us and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land. And it's interesting, in chapter 13, the unbelieving spies say, it's a land that's going to devour us. The land is going to eat us up. And Caleb says, not on your life, man. We're going to go in there. And those guys, we're going to eat them up. (laughs) Not in a good way either. We're going to terrify and just wreck them. Why? Because we've got God on our side. See, the question is, is the Lord pleased to give it to us? He's already promised to. So let's go up. 
Let's go up and take the land. Don't rebel. He says, do, he says, the Lord is with us, verse 9. Do not fear them. So now this people who don't want to fight, you know what they do? They pick up stones and they try to stone Joshua and Caleb. Wow. That's serious stuff, isn't it? When you make your choice between those who are preaching the gospel and you say, I don't want those people, I want the world, thank you very much. I want what I had before God brought me out of the old things. I want to go back to my old life. It was better before God came and got me. Which, of course, makes you wonder if these people really were saved in the first place. And that brings us to the New Testament, to the book of Hebrews. Let's just turn there in closing to chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. You remember that the book of Hebrews is written to believers of Hebrew extraction, at least those who profess to believe. They have come out of Judaism. They have left the temple and its sacrificial system. And they've come out to Christ. Only they've suffered tremendous persecution. And in this community, some of them have wavered and some of them have actually gone back. So now comes a warning from God in Hebrews 3 for them. He says, remember your history. This is history repeating itself. Remember Kadesh Barnea. Remember the spies. Remember what the nation did. He says, verse 15, uh, Hebrews 3, 15. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Now, when he talks about them not obeying in the previous verse, in verse 18, he uses a word which if you follow the something like 35 uses of it and its cognates, the related words to it, every time it's used in the New Testament, it's referred to unbelievers. And the last verse of the chapter explicitly says they couldn't enter in because of unbelief. Whereupon we got to examine the question of belief. Because these people in Israel were what my friend and brother in the Lord, Randy Amos, describes as believers who don't believe. They were people that intellectually knew a great deal about God. In fact, in their own experience, they had watched God work. They saw him do signs and wonders. They were living in one of those rare times in human history when God did a lot of truly miraculous things. They weren't atheists. They knew there was a God. They knew who God was. They knew it was Yahweh or Jehovah, the Lord. They saw him do these great miracles. They were like the demons who believe there's one God and tremble. But the demons aren't saved by that belief. See, you can have a lot of intellectual knowledge about God. The knowledge that saves is personal knowledge. The Lord Jesus defined eternal life this way in John 17, 3. This is life eternal, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. See, salvation is relational. When I met Naomi, I heard a lot of things about her. I heard she was from Iowa. 
We were in Canada at the time, so that was significant. She was the only other American in my age bracket. I heard she was about my age. I also heard she was single, which you might think led to something, but it it didn't really. It's a long story. I knew a lot about her. I tell you what, that's not how we ended up married with four children. (laughs) I had to actually enter into a relationship with her. I could know all about her. I could study about her. I even Googled her on the internet. I'll admit it. I found out she went to a business conference in Reno. I joked with her about the Kino and, uh, the, you know, and blackjack and all that, none of which she would touch with a 10-foot pole. But anyway, I thought it was funny. And uh, heard all about her education at Iowa State. I knew a lot about her. But it was only when I committed myself to her and she to me that we entered into this union where now we become what the Bible describes as one flesh. Well, salvation is much like that. You can know a lot about God. You can know God does miracles. You can see God change other people's lives. And you can still be unbelieving. The Lord Jesus spoke about it in his parable of the soils, didn't he? That there are some that receive the word, and for a while with joy, they're very excited. But then persecution or tribulation comes, and they fall away. Are the believers who have lost their salvation? No. Again, I tell you, that's absolutely impossible. Scripture after Scripture tells us that salvation is secure in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is able to save unto the uttermost them that come unto him, Hebrews 7 says. But the problem is these were believers, professing believers, who only ever believed intellectually, who only believed while it was convenient. And when it came down to the difficult decision where I'm going to choose the Lord rather than this world, I'm going to put aside my preferences and really follow him and let him do what he wants and trust him to do everything he's promised for me. They said, no, we won't do that. In fact, it was better before we ever heard about him when we were back in Egypt. I do trust there's no one here like that today. That you're someone who've grown up around the gospel or been around believers and you've heard it and you could repeat the verbiage. Maybe you've preached messages. Some of the great preachers in history have been men who preached for years without being converted. William Grimshaw preached for six years before he himself was saved. William Haslam of the 19th century got saved in his own sermon. As he was reading the scripture from the pulpit, he said, I perceive this is speaking about me. I need to get saved. And he went on to serve the Lord for decades. You can be very close to the gospel. You can be all around the things of Christ. But until you receive the Lord Jesus Christ personally, you won't be saved. You'll be a disobedient person who goes to hell with full knowledge of what the gospel was. May it not be so for his name's sake. Father, we just pray, do thy work by the Holy Spirit. Apply the word to our hearts. For the believers, Father, encourage us to be like Caleb and Joshua, to go on and to fight in the power of the Lord. But Father, if there's someone on the fence here this morning, they haven't really trusted Christ yet by true faith. We pray they'd repent, turn from themselves and their sin, and ask the Lord Jesus to save them. We ask this in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.